Before continuing that prayer today, we're going to pray for a harvest. You know, it says in Scripture that there was a man that was chastised for tearing down his barns to build bigger ones just so he could store up wealth. And the chastisement was, why wouldn't you tear down barns to build bigger ones that are of eternal value? And in this area, we've been praying for revival. We're praying that God's church, the fire would grow. And this can't happen. A a region cannot experience the power of God by little C church, small one church. No, if it's of God, it will be a big C church movement. And today is a special day for a church that has stepped out in faith and has chosen to anticipate a harvest. Effort of Community Church, ECC, today is, is worshiping for the first time in their new facility. And we want to pray blessing for them because it's not about blessing a small C church. It's about seeing the kingdom of God come here on this earth in the greater church. They are our brothers and sisters, and we celebrate with them on this day. Would you join me in praying for blessing for them as we continue the service? God, how I long to see your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. How I long to see a church that is radiant and vibrant. Jesus, you were the one that said, I will build my church. And it's so exciting to be in a region where there are many churches thriving right now that proclaim the name of Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. God, there are many churches in this region region that you're a blessing because they've honored you as the authority, your word as the guide for how to live and not choosing society's norms as what should prevail in our walls, in our communities, but rather choosing the divine path, that which is truly upon your heart. And God, ECC, you are a blessing, and so we bless them along with you. May this day be a special day as they worship you. May this be a day where you are the one that is glorified and no other. And Lord, from the youngest that enters those halls to the oldest, may they realize that this is not for them, but in honor of you to draw others into the kingdom. And so we just pray that there are greater days ahead for ECC Church. We pray that for the other churches around us, that that if they're beginning to falter, that, that they would return to your lordship and your authority in directing their church to bless. I'm thankful that we are near many who are seeking you as Lord and leader of their churches. So, Lord, we ask for that revival to happen. Not for our sake so that we uh, experience uh, more greatly an awareness of your heart and your mind and your mission. But, Lord, for those who yet have tasted of you, we want to see revival come on their behalf so that they can come into the kingdom. So, Lord, this is a special day for them, and we want it to be 
special for the kingdom of God. May it bring smile to your face. All that you see happen in the hearts of those worshiping there. Now, God, we just ask that as we open the word here and we learn more about you, would you speak to our hearts and bless this time. May we honor you and glorify you. In the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's actually very exciting, you know, um, to drive around the area and see churches moving and building. Not because it's about the structure itself. It suggests there's something at work and greater. And you can drive down 322 and see a lot of it uh, north of us here. And, uh, and then obviously you see what's going on here. But all of this is in preparation for what we hope is a harvest. And that is our heart's cry. And so if you're new here, we welcome you. And uh, we honor the Lord Jesus Christ as our leader. And hopefully you have sensed that and seen that today. And uh, my name is Tony, and I'm pastor here. And we're in the midst of a series uh, called Anchored. It comes out of a passage in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 6, where it says that in spite of whatever storms might be going around, we have this hope that is found in Jesus Christ that is an anchor to our soul. And so in spite of whatever might be raging around us, even however the large the waves might be, there is an anchor found in Jesus Christ that keeps us from being blown and tossed by the wind. And we're looking at that in light of Scripture, how he is that anchor in the midst of difficulties in our lives. Over the last several weeks, we've looked at relationships and how relationships can create many of those storms through conflict or, or harm of different kinds and, and re realizing that we need God to bring wholeness to those relationships. And then over the last several weeks of dealing with the emotional side, a lot of the inward stuff that goes on inside of us where uh, pressure and stress, anxiety and worry or depression has set in or perhaps harm has been done to you by another. And those things can wreak havoc inside of us and cause us to become hopeless. And we've discovered that, that as we're teaching through about hope being what rides through these difficult times, it, that if you do not have hope, hopelessness becomes the beginning of your end because you stop moving forward. You stop anticipating something greater. We know in Jesus Christ there is hope, and that's what we want to anchor into. And so as we've dealt with these issues over the last several weeks, now we're looking at it. So who is God in all of this, and how does that apply and give us hope in the midst of these challenging times? So at that, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139. And we're going to be there here in a, in a little bit, but I just want you to be ready for when we get there. As part of going through uh, such seasons as depression or worry, anxiety, or stress, or maybe even damage from being harmed by another, questions like, where was God when this happened to me? Or where is God as I'm in the midst of this? Or is God hearing my prayers? Perhaps even saying, God, do you even really care? Because I see that nothing is changing. Last week, the message was on God is everywhere. He's present. There's nothing that escapes his presence. 
Even when you might be trying to run as far away from where he wants you to be, he's still there. Today, we're going to look at the fact that God knows. He knows all things. And that can be the most comforting thing to most of us here in the room and to others. It might actually be a little bit creepy. Or maybe perhaps daunting because you don't want him to know everything that is going on. But to begin this, I need to start with a lesson learned by me a few years ago, actually quite a few years ago now, when I was a senior in college. I was majoring in youth ministry. I had taken all kinds of Bible courses by this point. I had taken a lot of theology courses by this point, taken a lot of Greek at this juncture of my academic education, but I hadn't taken a core class that was required of every student at my university, which was a university of about 3,000 students, Division II NCAA, so there were a lot of scholarship athletes that were playing sports there that were not Christians, uh, that were at this school. But this class called Christian Life was required by all students to take. So it was basically an introduction to Christian living, for people typically that may not know much about Jesus. But I'm a ministry major, so I've had all this. And, and even though I liked the professor who was teaching it, I was going to be in a classroom with a bunch of people that didn't get it. In the class, day one, fall, he made us do something that created awkwardness right away. I'm sitting in the midst of several basketball players that were taking this class, and they did not want to be there. Again, this is a required course. As soon as he began the class, he says the name of the class. He says, you have the syllabus, but before we go there, I want you to close your eyes and bow your head. And I hear snickering all around me. Immediately, this is exactly what they expected would happen, a bunch of mystical nonsense that they are going to have to participate in. I'm feeling awkward because I'm amongst people that are mocking it. And also the fact that I'm being told to do something that I would prefer not being told to do. So we bowed our heads and then he says, Now, I want you to talk to God and ask him this question. Ask him what he thinks about you. I hear more laughter around me, snickering. And I'm thinking, that was kind of lame to ask this group of guys around me. What do you think of me, God? The one guy sitting to my right is six foot ten. Big time athlete. And his voice when he laughed was, you know, really low. I can't even go that low because I'm too short to have a low voice like that. So I'm hearing little bits of responses that we're supposed to ask God, you know, what do you think of us? In the moment, I prayed that and I think I heard some things from God. I wasn't sure if that was just me propping myself up or, or it was definitely God. But it was awkward because there was a lot of silence in this. Then the professor says, now I want you to ask God another question. Ask him what he would have you do today for him. It's like, oh, okay, so we're getting an assignment from God. So, all right, God, what would you have me do today? And in that moment, 
as sure as I am speaking to you now, I am confident of what I heard. Talk to Darren. Talk to Darren. And I was like, Darren? Darren's this guy in my dormitory that is on second floor. My role in that dormitory is I was an assistant resident director. So I was over the RAs and served underneath the resident director or the house parent. So I knew who Darren was, but I didn't have a relationship with Darren. But you need to understand that Darren had a disability. Darren was legally blind. He had an issue with his eyes that in order for him to see what little he could see, he had to bounce as he walked because that would level out his eyes that didn't have the ability to stay steady. So if you could imagine being a college student, walking on a university campus, having to bounce in order to see, you can imagine what he's received throughout his lifetime. You can imagine the looks or the snickers he might have heard. But all I've got from God is talk to Darren. Now, I have to be honest. I was cynical. My heart and spirit was a little bit troubled by this idea and wondering if this was even real. The day goes by, I did not talk to Darren. I saw Darren, but I didn't talk to him. A couple days go by, I see him multiple times. And each time I see him, I'm reminded of talk to Darren. Each time I see him, consecutive days, the pressure, the intensity of feeling uncomfortable that I hadn't done what I was supposed to do was intensifying. Then one night, two weeks later, I'm doing my homework at my desk in my dorm room. My roommate's doing homework at his desk at the same time. And I finally could not work and study because all I'm hearing is talk to Darren. So I slammed my pencil down on the desk. I was like, all right. My roommate looks around I'm like, what? It's like, I got to talk to Darren. Why? Because <laughs> God wants me to. And he goes, that's weird. Because this was so random. I mean, and we're both doing homework and all of a sudden I'm slamming my pencil and I'm talking to God out loud. So I walk upstairs. I knock on Darren's door. He opens it slightly. He says, what do you want? I said, can I talk with you? He says, well, can you let me finish something first and then I can come down to your room. We can talk. And I said, that's fine. So I walk back downstairs. I go into my room. My roommate's now probably so weirded out, he had left and gone somewhere else. I'm in the room by myself, and I'm thinking, okay, God, he's coming. All you've told me to do is talk to Darren. I'm going to talk to him. I don't know a thing I'm supposed to say. Within 10 minutes, Darren shows up at my door. He comes in. He sits down in my desk chair, and I'm sitting on my bed. I look at Darren. I said, Darren... I don't know what's going on, but God told me to talk to you, and I think this is what I'm supposed to tell you. And out of my mouth came words I had not heard before and spoken to him, and that is, Darren, God loves you. He knows what you're going through. Trust him. That's all I said. Darren broke down and began to cry. 
I'm looking at him, and I, again, I have no idea what I've said and why it touched him so deeply. So I put my hand on his back, and I said, can you tell me what this is about and what's going on? Darren's not able to speak in this moment because he's so emotional, and he finally just says, this is what I was writing when you knocked on my door. And he hands me a note out of, from out of his pocket. I open it up, and on that note, all that it says is, God, I need to know you're there. I need to know that you love me because I don't think I could live one more day. I had no idea what Darren was doing when I knocked on his door. I had no idea what Darren was going through. I had no idea that in this precise moment, God needed to give a message to him. And I'm sitting there stunned because I realized for two weeks I've been wrestling with something that God wanted me to do and I did not do it. But at the very moment when I finally got there was the very moment Darren needed to hear from God. Some of you might say that is a very mystical, very risky approach to God. All I can say is, it's a fact. What happened that day? It taught me a lot, and it certainly taught Darren a lot. Darren got to hear that God loves him and that he's heard from him and that he's working on his behalf. I needed to hear that sometimes you just have to be obedient and trust that God's got this when he asks you to do something and that God is always working even when we can't see it. Darren and I both learned a lesson that day that God knows. God knows and he's invested. And God, with that knowledge, is working on our behalf. Do you believe? Do you understand that you have an active God who loves you? and wants to invest in your life, and is working through the storms to bring about something in your life that is greater than what was before. Do you know him? And do you know that God knows you extremely intimately? In Isaiah 55 verse 9, it says that God's perfect knowledge is higher than anything that you and I could ever conceive. In other words, the knowledge God has about you and about those sitting next to you and about the things that's going on around you is greater than you could ever conceive. In fact, it says in this text that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, Take the greatest level of depth thinking that you've ever done and you're not even scratching the surface of God's understanding, God's contemplations, God's considerations. God is active with that knowledge as well. And, and as a result, he knows the things of your past. He knows the things of your present. He knows the things of your future. 
And as, as, and in that, he is using it to affect your hearts. First John chapter 3, verse 20 says, If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts because he knows everything. There are things about our heart that even we don't know of ourselves because often we do not like to look at the very realities of our heart. Sometimes we're too scared to take an honest assessment of our hearts, of our motivations, of our souls. But God is not daunted by that and is in aware and is searching all these things. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says that he searches deeply into all things, not only of us, but of himself. Look at the, how this verse says, the spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So the Spirit of God searches all things, exhaustively searches all things. Not only us, which doesn't take that much work on his part, but also searches the depths of God to the fullest. So what does God know? Everything. He is not daunted by the, the deep recesses of his own heart, let alone the shallow recesses of our own heart. His ways are greater, and we can't always understand. But then, if this is God, and he knows that kind of thing, where he has searched the depths of himself, and he searched the depths of us, what does God care to know about us? What does he actively use in his knowledge about us? Well, this is a comforting fact. God cares to know even the most mundane facts about you. In other words, facts that matter little. Facts that we really don't care about. In fact, facts that are rather dull to understand. But yet God cares to know them even about you consider matthew chapter 10 when jesus says this are not two sparrows sold for a penny yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care so don't and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered so don't be afraid you are worth more than many dirty birds tony translation when you consider the sparrow, it's, the, it's one of the dirtiest birds that we have, and, in, and they're in plenty of supply. So we don't take particular care to make sure the sparrow's okay. We like our songbirds. We like other birds that have more color. The sparrow, not so much. But yet here it says that these dirty birds, these sparrows, are something that even God cares about when one of them falls to the ground. And yet we're more uh, uh, worthy and of more value than the sparrow, that God cares so much about you and I, he cares about the mundane fact of how much hair you have on your head. None of us have ever taken, I, and I'm confident of this, I'm pretty confident when I say it, no one here in this room or those listening online have ever taken the time to count how many hairs are on their head. And if you said you have, I'm sure you failed at the attempt. Consider this some partners that I work with. 
Now, it would be interesting to count the hairs on his head because he shaves his head. But you could probably see the shadows of some sprouts on the head, and you might be able to count some of that. But then he has his facial hair. God has that counted as well. I'm pretty sure Nick has never taken the time to count the hairs on his head. But yet, God knows exactly how many are on his head. Another staff member I work with, And boy, there are some times when Ken has that, that dome so clean, it shines when he's on stage. In fact, there's a glow on him right now. If you look back there, you can see the dome is polished nicely. So God doesn't have to do as much work on his head and counting the hairs on his head like his partner has. Let's just say this. Don't, oh, there we go. There we go. One of our staff members said that he has a son that thinks so highly of the amount of hair on and the style of that hair on Alex's head that they have chosen to go to the same hairstylist as Alex and they ask for the Alex. <laughs> so Alex did not know I was using this. I did not ask permission. I did of the other two, but not him. Low man on the pole, doesn't need to be asked. All right, I'll have to apologize later for that. But think about it, mundane, mundane. We don't take the effort to ever search the facts about how much hair we have on our head. We just care that we have it. That's all we care. We don't care the number, but God cares the number. Think about this. We're going to go to Psalm 139 now. God cares so much about what's going on with you that he knows and is aware and accounts for everything that is going on in your life. Just by reading one text, we're going to see that. So starting in verse 1 of Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. And before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. Oh my goodness. So in this text, you see that it begins with, Lord, you have searched me through and through. Lord, you have searched everything in me, through and through, that you know when I am sitting, standing, going, stopping. You are familiar with my behaviors because it says you're familiar with all my ways. So he knows your behaviors, your patterns. And the real creepy thing is when he says, and before you ever say anything, I know what you're going to say. I hate it when human beings think they know what you're going to say and they try to finish your sentences for you. God doesn't try to finish it for you. He knows what you're going to say. That's the level of intimacy and detail that God has on you. And the key to understanding this is that he's made effort to do so. It's not just like a case of, I know, just because I know. No, it says, he has searched you. So there's effort from God to know you. Everything, patterns, behaviors, 
your risings, your, your sitting down, your, your going out, your friends, your connections, the whole thing. He searched it all. Then the question becomes, well, what does he do with that information? If he knows that much about me, what does he do with that information? Well, I want to give an example of what Jesus did with information like that in regards to one of the people he had a relationship with. So I want us to turn to Luke chapter 22. I believe it's page 987 in the Bibles we handed out. Luke chapter 22, and let me give a little context. So Jesus has just spent an evening at the table, the night that he's going to be betrayed by Judas. Again, so many things happen at that table that night that we've been able to reference. But one that we haven't referenced before is, is about to come into our discussion today. So Jesus has already washed their feet. He's already given them new commands about loving one another. He has also done his first communion of which he says, you are to practice this in remembrance of me. When he held up the bread, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Then he takes the cup, holds it up, says, this is my blood, a new covenant for you, so that you do not have to any longer kill an animal to cover temporarily your sins. It's once and done. My blood is going to cover it all, and you now can be reconciled to God through faith. You would think after such a profound moment, arguably one of the great, up to that point, probably the greatest moment in the history of mankind, and the disciples, right after that text, start having an argument as to which of them are greater. Their pride was so significant that even after this profound moment, of having been served communion, after the moment where Jesus humbled himself and washed their feet, after the moment where he says you're to love one another, they're arguing who's greater. Which then leads to what we want to read today in verse 31. Simon, Simon, that's Peter, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, that you will strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go to prison for you and to death for you. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Hmm. Simon, Simon. Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Now, just in case some of you have no idea what that sifting process of wheat looks like, it's the place where when you take the head off of a, a stalk of wheat and it gets shaken or pressed or rubbed so that the kernels of seed get exposed and the chaff falls away. I remember as a kid, my grandfather walking me out to the fields of wheat that were there in Kansas and him taking the head and he putting it in his hand and he says, watch this. Puts his other hand down on it, rubs it like this, and then lightly blows off the chaff and what's left in his hand were seeds. This began 
a time where I would try to go out with them because he says this is what farmers do to see what kind of a harvest they're going to have. If there are healthy, plump seeds in their hand after they've done that, then it's going to be a good harvest. Sometimes when you do that, there, is some, there are no seeds or seeds that will not grow. And then they know what kind of harvest they're going to have, and it's not good. So when Satan is asking, I want to sift all these that are sitting around you, Jesus. I want to sift them like wheat. He's sniffing in the air that if he does that, it's going to prove that they're not good seeds. You're not going to be able to grow a harvest from this group. And I want to prove that to you, God. So give me permission to sift them as wheat. And I'll show you that you failed. Jesus, knowing that the accuser has asked to sift his apostles as wheat and to test them, he speaks some things that are very important to them, but in particular, he calls out one, Peter himself. He says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. And I prayed that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus, knowing what's going on in the heavenlies and knowing what's going to happen on the earthly side, his action was he prayed. He says, I have prayed for you. So with his knowledge of What's going on with Satan and his apostles, knowing that they're failing the moment, knowing that they're all going to scatter and abandon him, knowing that in particular Peter is going to deny him three times? Jesus prays. He offers hope before and during the storm. You see, it was just going to be hours later that this this opportunity to deny Jesus happens. And the first time he denies Jesus is to a 14-year-old girl. Yeah. So this man who says, I'll go to prison for you, I will go to the death for you, gets challenged by a 14-year-old girl. Aren't you one of them? No, 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 I'm not one of them. Two more times he denies Jesus. On the third time, the rooster crows. And you know what happens after that rooster crows? It says Jesus looked right at Peter. So Jesus was there within earshot and eye viewing to be able to see Peter in his final moment of denial. Jesus looks at him, knowing what he had said hours earlier. I have prayed for you, and I have prayed that when you turn back, because he said, I prayed that your faith may not fail, but when you have turned back, that you will strengthen your brothers. Peter goes out. He is devastated that he had that look from Jesus, knowing that it had come to fruition, that he had failed. But now the words of Jesus are, but when you have turned back, because you will. And when you do, I have a mission for you, and that is to strengthen your brothers. 
Within days of this moment, Jesus has ascended to heaven and the disciples are left in Jerusalem to wait upon the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes in power and they began to speak in the languages of those who were in Jerusalem at the time. And when people were mystified by what was going on, it was Peter who stood up and gave the first gospel message in the era of the church. He stood up in Jerusalem, which at that time, they were being hunted down as followers of Jesus. They were at risk of their lives. And Peter now is preaching publicly as to the meaning of what's just happened and calling people to a relationship with Jesus. Peter learned from his moment of failure. But he had been prepared because Jesus prayed. Using his foreknowledge, using all that he knew was going to happen. Jesus knew that Peter needs to understand that once he realizes the full essence of his failure, that there was going to be hope for him because he would turn back and he was going to be used to strengthen his brothers. You see, this is part of how God uses his ability to know you. He knows you. He knows you intimately. He knows your behaviors. He knows your thoughts. He knows things before you've ever spoken them. He knows your deepest, darkest secrets that even you don't want to acknowledge. So here's why that is a good thing, that God is the way God is. The greatness of this all-knowing God is that before you ever come to a humble point of actually acknowledging you need something from God, he already knows what you need before you ask. Jesus said this in Matthew 6. He says, your father knows what you need before you even ask him. That's comforting to me. Because that means he's already operating with before the request has ever been given. I mean, think about my story with Darren. Two weeks before Darren's writing that note, God's already saying, talk to Darren. Talk to Darren. Because God's preparing for the moment when he finally asks God for help, that God's going to deliver that help. So before we ever ask, God knows our needs. Number two, we have a God who has a Son and a Holy Spirit that advocates on our behalf. They pray for us when we lack the ability to know how to pray or to know what to ask for. Consider Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27, when it says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Now that's cool. You may not understand the theology of just what, what was written there where it says that when we don't know how to pray, God takes over. And the cool thing is the Spirit of God who takes over in that prayer knows how to pray according to the will of God. There are times when I'm praying that I'm praying for a certain thing from God and honestly, they're not great prayers and I shouldn't be asking for what I'm asking for. Some of you might be aware of the country song where thank God for unanswered prayers. 
It's a story of how one man had asked God, oh, well, may this woman become my wife, or may this woman become my wife, only to find that none of those women became his wife. But then when he realized who his wife is, then he writes the song, thank you, God, for those unanswered prayers, because I like the one you gave me. Country music is so biblical. <laughs> so when you're praying... The cool thing is, is there are times when we ask for something and God's like, if I give you what you're asking for as you're asking for it, you're not going to like the result. And you know what? I'm okay with God saying, you know what? You're not asking in the way you should because that's not going to be the result you desire. Let me use my knowledge of the future, my knowledge of your past, and my knowledge of this present moment to respond to this in a manner that's best benefiting to you. So I say, Lord, take over. When I'm praying and I'm at that place where I'm running, losing words, Lord, take over. And then lastly, the greatness of having a God who knows what we need even before we ask and, and, and helps us when we don't even know what to ask for. Lastly, he's not willing to let things that you have trapped in darkness because you're too afraid to address them. He's not willing to let it just stay there. He addresses it. He reveals the hidden darkness in your life that's too daunting for you to acknowledge. Consider when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well. He's talking to the Samaritan woman and she had committed some pretty awful sins. And she had had multiple husbands. And God through Jesus, spoke into her life and acknowledged what she wasn't willing to admit with her own lips, Jesus calls out truth. You would think that that would cause the woman to operate in such shame, but she was more amazed by the fact that everything she ever did was being revealed. That's what it says in, in verse uh, 29. It says, many of the Samaritans from that, or in verse 39, it says, many of the Samaritans believed in Jesus, because of the woman's testimony, who said, he told me everything I ever did. Now, did Jesus stand there for hours talking about every sin she ever did? No. It was the fact that he revealed something that she had kept hidden that caused her to realize there is all these things I've ever done. But she was so blown away by what had happened there that she went into town saying, I think the Messiah is here. I think the one who's going to heal us is here. I think the one that's going to lead us out of our troubles is here. And many believed in Jesus because of revealing the darkness of her heart. Some of us here need God to hold up. Here's what you've been ignoring in your life. And I want you to see it because I think you'll find freedom if you'll acknowledge it and surrender it to me. That's the power of an all-knowing God who cares about you and I to the deepest core, to the point where he searches all those crevices that we want to ignore. Let's pray. So God, I am saying thank you <laughs> that you go further than what we limit ourselves. You do not see boundaries you move beyond. You search your own heart deeply and you search ours thoroughly. God, work in our hearts now because maybe we need to apply the fact that you do know 
You're not ignoring our failures. You're not ignoring our struggles. You're not ignoring our fears, but rather you are deeply invested. You want to hear from us, and when we fail to speak well, you fill in the gaps. And I say, thank you, God. So speak to the hearts that need to receive this today. And may it grow faith in us that we have an all-knowing and all-caring God. Thank you, Jesus, for modeling this and teaching that to us. Amen. If you'd like to pray with someone, we will have people underneath the cross to my right, your left, they would be glad to pray with you. Just know that Jesus is already interceding on your behalf. The Holy Spirit is searching you deeply and wanting to bring you into full freedom with the Father God. All that happens because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, to which he gave all so that we could have all that God wants to have for us. In his final words before the disciples, he says this, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end. That is our charge. He is with us every step of the way, and he knows us, and he knows how to lead. Amen. You are dismissed.